And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is January the 23rd, 2018. Uh, Early this morning at about 4, 4 a.m., I was uh, walking the floor as so often, sorting out various anxieties, my usual angst. And um, I thought, well, I seem to be doing that more and more these nights. And I, I just glanced at my television. I often leave it on, you know, uh, muted without the sound. But I use it as a kind of fireplace. And I, I just caught a scene from Camelot. I didn't have my glasses on, so it was a little blurry, and I I uh, put my uh, glasses on. I'm very short-sighted, and I saw that 1967 movie, uh, yes, Camelot, with Richard Harris and Vanessa Redgrave. Now, how did I miss that picture back in 1967? I know I saw parts of it, but, you know, For some of us, 1967 was not a year for musicals. I remember I winced when Jackie Kennedy spoke about that that moment in our history, that brief moment when John Fitzgerald Kennedy came to the White House. Ah. And we we knew that whiff of glory called Camelot. Actually, Jackie apologized for that herself in after years. At the time, uh, I thought it was pretty silly. The interviewer just grabbed hold of that uh, that thought. Uh, watching the movie. I was just stunned by that scene in the Great Hall when all that medieval magic glowed. It it was the painterly effect 
bit of theatrical genius, I'm sure. Nothing realistic about it at all. Ah, those burnished golds and uh, rust reds and amber, the tapestries, the breathtaking costumes. I don't know how they got that so perfect. Uh, little Estelle Winwood, lady somebody or other, that headdress uh, to die for. All those gowns. Ah, sometimes all that glitters is pure gold. Theatrical gold, of course, sometimes. Sometimes. Those funny little grains of sand, those tears in the seas of time, they do sparkle. They catch the light, you know. Uh, those amber walls and shimmering sets. Uh, I just think, um, I just think it was as if it was new to me, as if I, I had forgotten what Hollywood was really capable of. Uh, I was watching that scene just before the intermission when King Arthur knights Lancelot with Excalibur, uh, when Guinevere looks tragic the way lost women are supposed to look, and then Arthur sings about hope for transcendence, uh, about the chance to love in spite of our anguish. Uh, he sang about the time when compassion will not be weakness, yes, ah, when revenge would not be the answer. That scene is quite unique. Ah, that wild illusion that truth and beauty are still dating, that the adulterous lovers um, are just, just Lance, and Jenny. <laughs> Jenny, that was my name until I was 40. I felt three syllables would give me weight, so I stopped being Jenny. And Jennifer, Genevieve, Guinevere. My God, just imagine such a world, living in a world like that. All those doves flying up into the rafters. Ah, as human hearts forgive each other and they all grow old together and they tell stories by the fire. I do remember, I do remember old people with illusions like that back in the, it would be the 1940s, folks. <laughs> World War II, I guess. All those sailors in that little house down by the ocean in La Jolla, all those boys and girls from the Naval Hospital. So many of them never came back from the war anyway. I'm just so sick and tired of our own socio-political squabbles today in the 21st century. Ah. Hell, I think I, I'll just spend the next three years curled up with Victorian novels, you know, and the sort of music 
that uh, just lets me dream, float, drift. This week, I picked up George Eliot's Middle March. That should last me at least a month. Uh, I never read books that I haven't read before. I don't have time to waste any more with new stuff <laughs> that doesn't look promising. I stacked up several books, uh, tomes, not all Victorian, uh, but the kind of books, you know, that once you dip into them, you just stay with them, you know, for weeks. After Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy, I'll soak in Sigrid Unset's uh, trilogy, Kirsten Lovren's Daughter, Norse Sagas, Help me to think in centuries. Uh, Sigrid Unset's four-volume masterpiece titled The Master of Hestviken. That's the one that got her the Nobel Prize for Literature. Now, a reread of that one will last me, oh, probably um, all summer. By then, I'll be ready for a book that I've never finished. It's uh, longer. It's longer than Cervantes' Don Quixote. I think it's, it's more than a thousand pages. It's Marguerite Young's mammoth prose poem, Miss Mackintosh, My Darling. Let's see. In a sentence, I could try to tell you. Miss Mackintosh is the, the unreachable ideal. She's the nursemaid that left her uh, her corsets and umbrella things by the edge of the sea and that's the last time she was seen Miss Mackintosh the author Marguerite Young is a descendant of Brigham Young which may account for her ability to transcend reality Brigham Young certainly did that uh Certainly lived in a dream. Anyway, the early pages of Miss Mackintosh, my darling, they are just all descriptions of the author's mother's opium dreams. Fabulous. Uh, uh, This book was recommended to me by the late Anais Nin uh, at some point. She told us that any young writer just starting out could always go to Marguerite Young for inspiration, you know, for learning how to just just start writing and keep dreaming. Uh, this past week, I just simply gave up, you know. No more surfing the zeitgeist for good news for something to give us hope. Uh, uh, Of course, oh, I am happy that women are on the march again. Uh, That's cool. That's cool. I heard some pundits say that the uh, EPA, that is the Environmental Protection Agency, is having an awful struggle with Congress just now. They suggested that the best plan might be to drop off a score of polar bears on the floor of the Senate. That's cool. It's worth doing. I think 
concrete things are useful. I remember I used to mail fig leaves to people like, oh, you know, uh, Strom Thurmond, people like that. Uh, um, uh, Falwell, yes. Uh, pink, pink shower curtains to the military men uh, so they wouldn't have to worry about uh, gay soldiers. Uh, <laughs> anyway... I feel that I no longer have a right to grieve at my age. No wringing of the hands. No right to complain. There's an old adage. Something about, yes, if you can't help, if you can't get on, get on the, the, the bandwagon. If you can't help, then just get out of the way. I think that's Bob Dylan's song, God Bless His Bones. I think it's lovely that Bob Dylan got a Nobel Prize. (laughs) Oh, yes, literature is changing. Anyway, I'm going to be patient. There's only three more years of D.J. Trump, right? (laughs) I'll read all my favorite old novels. No new, new books. Uh, Only the ones that I, I know are good, that have proven their worth. Same with the films, the movies. Uh, no sense wasting two hours unless I unless I really, really have a hint that something new might be up there on the screen. Uh, I just watch the ones that I've seen often enough to know they're worth, they're worth seeing. Uh, or books worth reading. I'm Trying, just trying to review my notes to see if time changes anything. Changes everything. I'll check again today. I'm still looking to see if the great women writers taught me anything. In 84 years, surely I should have picked up a little advice. Uh, I wonder, is Virginia Woolf still a great writer, the writer, the woman writer? You know, one who told me so much about the effects of, well, sexual abuse, I guess, but general oppression, you know. Uh, she was cross because her brothers went to college, went to school, and... Uh, She did not. Yes, I love it. She talks about men's colleges and women's colleges, and the men drink wine and the women drink water. (laughs) Anyway, sexual abuse and harassment, anyway, that subject seems to head the list of things, things to make a fuss about, things to try to change, things to bring into the light, uh, something to uh, educate the young and the not-so-young ah, educate in the hope that sexual harassment can be understood as a symptom, uh, as an early indication that some men are jerks and that they must be made aware before they get permission to become mega-jerks. <laughs> Move on. To the hard stuff. Uh, like Virginia Woolf, 
I'm one of those who simply does not like the masculine qualities, the extremes, the master narrative of our uh, culture, of Western culture, that is. For Westerners, the warrior, the hero, that's, that's the fella. Uh, even women, yes, uh, don't call them a heroine because, you know, that immediately, that immediately denigrates them. The woman as hero, I guess we can live with that. Woman warrior, that's very big just now. But, ah, ha, ha. It's so easy, it's so easy for those qualities to give men and women permission to be just bullies, to push people around, to torture, to intimidate, all the rest of it. Uh, nothing, nothing at all will change till fathers love their sons more than they hate their enemies. It's a tough call. For Virginia Woolf, the coming of Hitler was enough to cause her to kill herself in 1941. For some... It's the only way out. Last time, I was reading to you about Virginia Woolf, about her uh, <laughs> her efforts to transcend what was happening in the 1930s. Uh, she succeeded in removing herself from the scene on March the 28th, 1941. She drowned herself in a river close by. That one experience, as she had said to Vita Sackville-West, her friend, the one experience I shall never describe. <laughs> she used to say that no experience is complete until it has been described. That's a writerly opinion. Uh, anyway... She was basically afraid of another mental breakdown that was a recurring nightmare in her life. It all harkened back to the uh, time when she was six years old. Well, for years, actually, uh, her half-brother, George Duckworth, uh, abused her sexually, humiliated her, caused her to become what one of her biographers, a nephew, called frigid yes indeed frigid uh, she didn't want that to happen again she wrote a nice note to her husband Leonard saying she didn't want to go on and spoil his life she was 58 at that time and she was suffering again from auditory hallucinations <laughs> She had tried to drown herself once before. Her first suicide attempt came when she was 13, about the time of her mother's death. Yes, I too was 13. I never thought of suicide. I just thought it was time to take stock, <laughs> make some choices anyway. Virginia had to put large stones in her pockets in order to drown, something to hold her down. 
I always think of her experience as valuable, not just because of the skill with which she wrote and thought, but because her life was prophetic. In the beginning, she was a woman of her time. In spite of all that stuff she writes about going against the current and working with her back braced against the wall, what is that, dancing on hot bricks until she dies. In the 1920s, she wrote a brilliant feminist primer titled A Room of One's Own. Uh, yes, assigned reading for feminists, in which she insisted that we must avoid bias and that the cause of women can only be served by those who have no axe to grind. <laughs> she cautioned women against being shrill. Yeah, the ultimate sin, you know. Keep your mouth shut, girls. By the time she came to write Three Guineas, and that was published in June of 1938, she seems to have realized that it's a little late for justice. By then, she had put two and two together, and she realized that fascism begins in the home, that the personal and political are one and the same. Wolf was what is today called an eco-feminist. Uh, she saw the, the whole thing, you know, the big picture. She looked at Hitler, and she looked at her father, and she had an aha experience. Now, Virginia Woolf was an out-and-out -out pacifist, unlike uh, her husband, Leonard, who, who had second thoughts from time to time. Uh, she just plain didn't like uh, the beastly masculine reaction uh, to these uh, what were they, these uh, incursions of Hitler into Poland, September the 1st, 1939. That was the source for the dark days descending on them. Three Guineas was a genuine protest. Uh, it denounced oppression. It depicted real evils in such a way that it was sure to turn off male intellectuals. Her biographer, Quinton Bell, nephew, says his own reaction at the time of publication was to feel that any attempt to involve a discussion of women's rights with the far more agonizing and immediate question of what we were to do in order to meet the ever-growing menace of fascism and war was uh, an attempt to make a connection between two questions most tenuous. <laughs> He also adds that Virginia's positive suggestions are wholly inadequate. Even Vita Sackville West, Virginia's dear friend, did not like the book. Uh, Maynard Key said the argument was silly, and he hastened to add, then in addition, it was not very well written. I love it. I love it. That's always the, the ultimate phrase. Uh, that those pundits used it was not very well written, <laughs> even if it was true, right. 
even today, attempts to connect the war on women with the war on humanity generally meets with resistance. I can't help reflecting that just recently I was sitting with a young woman talking about the problems of date rape uh, on her college campus. Her father entered the room, the conversation became awkward, and both the young woman and I found that we had switched to uh, oppression and various tragedies in the Middle East, you know, in order to assure her father that our real, real concerns were for the larger issues. <laughs> when I read Virginia Woolf's essay, Three Guineas, I couldn't help but recall Emily Bronte's schoolgirl essay titled The Butterfly. That's a cruel and poetic sketch in which Emily Bronte sees the world as a vast destructive machine, a hierarchical and violent place in which all life exists to devour other life. Of course, Emily is or was didactic for the purposes of Victorian prose. Uh, she does state that order can be forged from chaos and transmutation can occur. Right. She knew it was her Christian duty to say something positive. <laughs> Virginia Woolf is a modern woman. It was her conviction that things fall apart. Putting them together again is another story. When I take Virginia Woolf into a classroom, I usually begin with her novel, To the Lighthouse. For younger readers, it seems best to go right to the family, always the heart of the matter. The subject of Woolf's politics must begin where everything begins, at home. To the Lighthouse is, of course, about the maternal mythos of Virginia's mother. All about the monumental Victorian illusion of the sacred nature of home and family. Letting go of that grand illusion is perhaps the hardest thing any modern writer has had to do. To the Lighthouse is a story about a family how it is held together by the mother and by her illusions. It is a portrait of certain aspects of Virginia Woolf's youth. Her mother, Julia, died in her late 40s. And Stella, two years later, that was an elder half-sister, then Vanessa. <laughs> uh, Vanessa and Virginia, uh, they survived their father, Leslie Stephen, but he pressed them into service. Uh, Julia, her mother, was the woman that Wolf described as the angel in the house. Yes, the angel in the house. Hmm. Into the lighthouse, the mother, the house angel, is the center of gravity, the inner sanctum, the force which holds everything, everyone together. Perhaps, if she were removed, and she is in this novel, things could fall apart. Did Wolf believe 
that the mother provides the support system upon which all patriarchal assumptions rest. <laughs> in her own life, Virginia rejected the role of angel in the house. Right, she was neither sacred cow nor maternal monster. Only an artist, a childless artist. As an artist, she claimed the right to be let alone, to abdicate feminine responsibilities. I think we can talk about that again next Tuesday. How do we get away with it? Not becoming cliches. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next Tuesday, you go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. How can we grow food humanely and sustainably, regenerate our soils, and reverse climate change? I'm Roger Wasson of the Farm to Table Talk podcast. Join me in learning practical, cutting-edge solutions to these issues and more at the 38th Annual EcoFarm Conference, January 24th through the 27th in Pacific Grove, California. EcoFarm is a networking hub for educational exchange among farmers and the organic farming community. With over 70 workshops, keynote speakers, farm tours, an exhibitor marketplace, seed swap, live entertainment, and organic culinary fair. This event is a benefit for the Ecological Farming Association. To learn more and to register, visit eco-farm.org. This event is wheelchair accessible. For more information, call 831-763-2111.